Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nevy. Each holiday brings with it a certain set of traditions. The Thanksgiving turkey, lighting the menorah during Hanukkah, lighting the kinara during Kwanzaa, filling Christmas stockings, Diwali illuminations, pre-dawn feasting during Ramadan, red envelopes for the Lunar New Year. But of course, every family has their own traditions that make their version of the holiday unique. And some families are a little extra. This hour, we're going to find out about some of the more unusual holiday traditions, and we'll start with Hanukkah and a big and at times boisterous family in Iowa City. Gail Brashears Krug is here. Hello, Gail. Hi, Charity. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you so much for being here. So you are a mother of six. I am. And you celebrate Hanukkah. We do. So you've been doing this for a long time and for a long time with kids. Correct. There are a lot of Hanukkah traditions. I mean, with with eight nights, there are a lot of things that you are supposed to do with Hanukkah, right? But you have put your own spin on several of them. <laughs> we have, yes. We moved here 15 years ago from Baltimore. Baltimore is, I think, by population per capita, the most Jewish city in America. It's not New York. So we came from sort of a mega shul environment, a very large synagogue, where we had a fairly significant Jewish community all around us. And, you know, in those contexts, Hanukkah isn't that big a deal, as you're probably aware. It's not a major holiday. It's really a celebration of a military victory. And they grafted on some miracle language later on to kind of make it more appealing to the rabbis. But essentially, it's a celebration of a minor military victory by a uh, an insurgent guerrilla force that defeated an occupying army. So that's cool. But it wasn't that big a deal when we were in Baltimore. But 15 years ago, we moved here from Baltimore. And hardly any of our neighbors are Jewish. And there just isn't, you know, you go to Hy-Vee and you don't see a big, you know, Hanukkah section. And it's cute when they do. They like they put the Passover foods out for Hanukkah because they don't know. I mean, God bless them, right? (laughs) So I kind of decided at that point to kind of crank up our Hanukkah a little bit. And so I decided, you know, so that it can... They don't feel so left out around Christmas. Right, because there's so much going on. Oh, my gosh, on. there's so much Christmas. Yeah. So we decided six kids, eight nights, we're going to do the 48 presents. Wow. That's a lot of presents. That is so many presents. And in addition to being expensive, it's like exhausting trying to think of eight presents for six different kids. Right. Like sometimes and they're hard to buy for. You do create a spreadsheet. Oh, I do every year. Yes. And I mean, and careful about like there is a big present night. There is a small present night. There is a book night and so on. And so you got to like make sure Amazon ships everything and Etsy and, you know, all the weird places we buy things from get everything in time. So you have to also like be able to, you know, adjust on the fly if the Sanrio Hello Kitty character did not arrive in time for the first night. She gets bumped to seventh night and then we move in, you know, the the book or whatever. Anyways, so we decided that, you know, we were going to go all in and it was just exhausting and it was too much. So as I mentioned, the The holiday, the miracle aspect of Hanukkah is the story that after the Maccabees and their insurgent army reclaimed the temple, which had been violated by the Greek Assyrians, 
they attempted to relight the Ner Tamid, which means the eternal light. That is a symbol in every synagogue. It's a light that is kept on continuously, obviously symbolizing the light of God that exists continuously even when you can't see it. So the idea was that they were going to relight the Ner Tamid, but there was only enough consecrated olive oil in the temple to last for one night. So the miracle is that they lit the Ner Tamid on day one, and it lasted eight nights. And some people say, therefore, that the miracle is really only seven nights, because the first night there's no miracle. They had enough olive, olive oil. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> but the point is that the miracle is centered around oil. And so Jews, being a food-loving people, one of the ways we honor our holidays is we eat oily foods, specifically deep-fried oily foods, and most specifically latkes, which are potato pancakes, and sufganiot, which is basically the Hebrew word for donuts. So who doesn't like latkes and donuts, right? So what we decided was, especially this is when my kids were much younger, their idea of the best night of Hanukkah ever was just all the donuts you can eat. So our, our number one tradition is donuts for dinner. One night during Hanukkah, depending on their school schedule and whatever, we have donuts for dinner. We have nothing else for dinner. Ugh. Just donuts. It's super a, gross. A child's dream. Yes. Though. They love it so much. Yeah. And it's so gross. In the pre-pandemic times, we would take them to various donut shops. And actually, their favorite ended up being the Hy-Vee because they have the little cafe, you know. Mm -hmm. And so we would go to Hy-Vee and they would go down to the donut case and pick out the donuts they wanted. And then we'd go sit in the cafe and whenever they wanted more donuts, they'd just get up, order more donuts. And it was super gross again, but they loved it. And we would stay until everyone felt sick or someone's anxiety got to the point where they needed to be home. Since the pandemic, I basically just go buy an enormous enough scene. Yes, Ill. yes, yeah. and and often like Benji, my oldest son, is old enough now that he brings his girlfriend. So you know we have extra people coming, and so you know, and and my boyfriend might come, and so we get enough donuts that it could make several people sick, not just our family. And I'm kind of proud of that. That's awesome, though. Um, I can they just imagine yeah. how much they love it. Oh, they love it way more than presents. Yeah. You know, in fact, my one of my sons, Kobe, you cannot buy for him. He cannot come up with, he can't come up with seven things he wants. One year, we got him a library card because that was like when he was seven. I mean, he still thought that was cool. But so this year he was like, can we just do donuts like two or three nights? <laughs> it's like, man, I love you, but I don't love you that much. <laughs> Come up with something. But yeah, so they love the donut night. That's a big hit. And then our other, I'm going to say dumber, but maybe not dumber, Hanukkah tradition that everyone, again, I'm going to say loves, but sort of loves, is when they were small and we lived in Baltimore and they went to Sunday school in elementary grades and preschool, and they taught them a Hanukkah song that is very obviously like a kindergarten level Hanukkah song. And so we started singing it every night when we light the Hanukkah candles. And now they are ranging in age from 13 to 23. And I still make them sing the kindergarten Hanukkah song. And honestly, I say I make them, but they insist on it. They yeah. are very it's uh, tradition. Big fans. Yes. And I'm going to sing a little bit of it. My apologies in advance to the listening audience in the unlikely event that you don't cut this. <clears throat> oh, we're not cutting it, Gail. Yeah. Okay. It get, and it gets longer every night. So you do it once for the first night, twice for the second night, and so on. And it goes like this. How many candles, how many candles, how many candles do we light? 
on the Hanukkah, on the Hanukkah, on the first night. One, 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 one. How many candles? And so on. And so for the first night, you just stop after the one. The second night, you go on to two, et cetera. And of course, they jump around and clap their hands. And so by night six, seven, eight, people are heaving and panting and bent over like the out of shape Iowans that we are. <laughs> well, you can't do donut night too late in Hanukkah. Because yeah, right. And the candle song and the donut. Oh, yeah, forget it. Disaster. Yeah, forget it. Although, you know, we do the candles before the presents, which is it, th- that's, there's an incentive structure there. You know, that's not accidental. They have to get through the candle lighting first. So it's pretty hilarious to watch these 18, 20-year-old kids who are way too cool for this stuff, but are also kind of sitting and calmly going, how many candles, <laughs> mumbling it and sort of lightly <laughs> clapping. And it's it's very cool. I like it a lot. And I will say, and I don't want to uh, be a downer, but two and a half years ago, my oldest child died suddenly and unexpectedly of a seizure. And, you know, the firsts, First holidays after you lose someone can be very, very tough. In fact, that year they died in June, and when the high holidays came around, I just couldn't do it. I said, you know, kids, I love you. I am opting out of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. I can't do it this year. And so when Hanukkah came around, you know, we were five or so months into our grief, and I spoke to them all, and I said, look, you know, what do you want to do about this? Because I know it can be painful. I know it can be hurtful. Uh, but I don't want to skip Hanukkah unless you guys really want to. And we can remake these traditions. We can move the menorah somewhere else. We can change the song. We can, you know, mix it up. We can do all kinds of things. And they were adamant that we not change a thing. In fact, it was more like, mother, how dare you even suggest such a thing? You know, they really held on to their traditions. And so to see them kind of roll their eyes at the, you know, how many candles do we light song, when I know two and a half years ago, they were like, how dare you suggest we not light, we not sing the how many candles song. It's nice. And it brings them home. And they, they really, it becomes pretty raucous. It becomes pretty crazy. And now, now that I'm divorced, they spend half the nights at their dad's house, but he's not Jewish. So they come over to my house, even on dad nights to light the menorah. And receive their presents. Again, like I said, there is an incentive structure right, right. there. Um, so they, you know, they are active in planning, you know, okay, well, what night's book night going to be? And is there a clothing night this year? Several months in advance, I'll say, okay, I want my big present for Hanukkah to be this, you know, mod for my synth deck or whatever. I don't know if I said that right. My <laughs> kid who's into synths will probably be very mad at me for misstating that. But so they have really internalized that and adopted it. And that's kind of what Hanukkah means to them now. Oh, also we get, you know, gelt and play dreidels, but everybody gets gelt and play. Gelt is the little gold coins, gold chocolate coins and spin dreidels. But that's pretty cute. A holiday after after you lose somebody can be so difficult, but it also sounds like this has been a part of embracing your grief. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And, um, You know, we are definitely at the point where I think we all can have memories of Jareth, my oldest child, that are much more joyous than sad. And we can remember things about them that are hilarious and laugh about that without, you know, needing to cry as well. And, you know, holidays are one of those things that 
evoke memories of family moments past. And so it's one of those times when it really feels like Jareth's presence is there in a stronger way. And I think that's a beautiful thing. I think that, and I, when Jareth first died and I met with a grief counselor, uh, what he told me is that grief is a way of loving somebody without their body being present. And I think that we are managing to do that and that our Hanukkah traditions play a big part, for sure. Gail, thank you so much. Sure, thank you for having me. And uh, Chag Sameach, Happy Hanukkah, all you Jews and all you people who want to celebrate Hanukkah who aren't Jews. Gail Brashears Krug of Iowa City. More unique holiday traditions to come on Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion including Above and Beyond Cancer. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. No matter what holidays your family celebrates, you probably put your own spin on it. This hour, I'm talking with people about their unique holiday traditions. Later in the hour, we will meet a family that turned an idea for a funny picture into an annual extravaganza. But right now, Kwanzaa is an annual celebration of African-American culture and traditional values that is observed from the December 26th through January 1st. Abena Sankofa Imhotep's family celebrates Kwanzaa each year, and they have made it their own. Imhotep lives in Des Moines and is the author of Omari's Big Tree and the Mighty Jimbe. Hello, Abena. Hi, Charity. How are you? Good. Welcome back to the show. And this is a holiday that I think a lot of people listening are likely less familiar with. So I'm going to ask you to do a little bit of education, if you don't mind. Can you tell me a little bit about how Kwanzaa is celebrated? Sure. Well, Kwanzaa is a holiday that um, really was originated by Dr. Mulana Karinga from Oakland, California in the 60s as a way to celebrate um, African-American heritage here in the United States. But over time, it's become a global phenomenon for people from the Af- African diaspora. So Kwanzaa, as you mentioned earlier, is celebrated the day after Christmas, December 26th, through New Year's Day, which is January 1st. And each day, a value or a principle called the Nguzo Saba is recognized. And when this holiday was created, there was some inspiration from traditional African harvest celebrations. Am I right about that? You are right. So um, harvest is a time in many cultures where you literally reap the bounty of what, what's been sown. And so that's true in many cultures and African cultures. So some of that was pulled into um, the the celebrations and traditions around Kwanzaa. For instance, um, there is a table in a family or household that is set up uh, that's covered with an African cloth. And on top of that cloth is a mat called Nkike. And on that mat are certain things placed. So we have the Kanara, which is the candle holder, and the Mishuma Saba, which are seven candles. And then around that are uh, stalks of corn to represent 
the harvest, the new generation, the children. Um, and then there is a unity cup. Um, and then, again, we celebrate the seven principles, the Yonguzo Saba, um, as well. So this is a holiday with very deep historical ties, and yet in some ways it's a young holiday compared to some of the others that are celebrated this time of year. This is true. And I think it's that's what makes it, of course, unique, but also very special because we're able to think about, you know, the legacy of our of our ancestry um, from the continent of Africa and then um, our experience, our collective memory here in the United States as a as a group of people. And then we're able to look forward and press toward a positive, uh, prosperous future by recognizing all of the principles and things that are involved with Kwanzaa. So when you each day light the Kanara and talk about this principle, what do you do? What is the, the sort of routine or tradition that you go through on a, on a daily yeah. basis? Yeah, so it's different for every family. There are variations. But for us, so the Kanara is a candle holder that holds seven candles. The, the candle in the center is black. And then on the left side are three red candles, and on the right side there are three green candles. On the first day of Kwanzaa, December 26th, we light the center candle, the black candle, and it represents the people, the people of the African-American culture um, and all of the strength and resilience uh, that we embody. And so on that day, we celebrate Umoja, which is unity, the unity of the people. And then from there, every every day, we alternate between the candles on the left and the candles on the right. So on the right side, the red candles represent the struggle of the people. And so we celebrate self-determination. And then on the right side, the green candles represents the hope of the people. So that following day, we would celebrate Ujima, which is collective work and responsibility, and go back and forth until that seventh day culminating in a great celebration and a feast, which could be in the family or among the community. How long have you been celebrating Kwanzaa? We've been actively practicing Kwanzaa for about five years. Um, Prior to that, we were um, involved in community celebrations because in our community here in Des Moines, there there are a couple of community celebrations. But we decided about five years ago to really focus and intentionally um, put our efforts and some commitment behind the holiday as a as a family unit. And so in addition to celebrating with our community, we make sure every day of Kwanzaa to have our family celebrate as well. Now, I, I only know a couple of other families that also celebrate Kwanzaa, and I've been surprised to see how different every celebration is. Some of those families also celebrate Christmas, right, before Kwanzaa. And so, you know, the the gift giving happens on Christmas and then the focus on the principles and the values happens throughout Kwanzaa. And and then there's the feast opportunity. Does your family celebrate other adjacent holidays or is this your main holiday? Well, Kwanzaa is actually one of our main holidays. I mean, we celebrate other um, African-American holiday traditions as well, such as Juneteenth. Um, But Kwanzaa really is the point in my family that we come together and look back over the year and over the histories and recognize how far we've come and how much further we have to go 
and show a lot of love. And we make sure to, to do some service as well, because it's not just about celebration. It's also about service. And so any way that we can be of service to our community or make a commitment to be of service to the community, we'll do that. How have you made it your own? Well, um, particularly with gift giving, I think you, you brought up Christmas, and that's a time when a lot of people give a lot of gifts. And that's a way to show people that you love them and that you care. For Kwanzaa, um, I think a big difference, a point of departure would be that the gift giving is more so about the children. It's focused on the children and giving them gifts that they can utilize. So what we've done in our family is we've adopted a practice of giving something that uh, something you want, something you need, something to wear, and something to read. We're big readers in our house, so everyone is getting a book of some sort. And um, we make sure that we're intentional about our gift giving, and if it's something that we can make with our hands, um, that makes it even more special. Well, I hope that you have a very happy Kwanzaa this year, and thank you so much for sharing your family's traditions with us. Thank you, Charity. Happy Kwanzaa. Happy holidays. Abena Sankofa Imhotep lives in Des Moines. She is the author of the children's book, Omari's Big Tree and the Mighty Jimbe. With a Muslim-Palestinian father and a Catholic mother who grew up in small-town Iowa, Khaled El-Khatib grew up in Dubuque, Iowa, with a blend of traditions. But this year, his mother's commitment to making Christmas as special as possible for her family is getting a whole lot of attention. Every year before Christmas, Janet El-Khatib sends out a detailed itinerary for the family Christmas celebration, including an extensive menu. This year, Khaled tweeted out a picture of his mom's plan for what they would eat on Christmas Day, and it went viral. Khaled, who lives in New York, is home for Christmas in Dubuque now, and he and Janet are on the line with me. Hello, Khaled. Hello. And hello, Janet. Good morning and hello. Oh, thank you both so much for being here. And, and Khaled, I want to start with you. You tweet out this photo, just a screen grab from your mom's email with the menu for Christmas Day, breakfast, egg bake, French toast bake, bacon, hash browns, fruit, mimosas, coffee, snacks, a long list of snacks. I don't even have time to read all the snacks. Dinner, beef tenderloin, potatoes, mashed or twice baked, question mark, mushroom, cheese bread, roast vegetables, carrots, shallots, fennel, cauliflower, broccoli, dessert. There's there's this is this is out of this world. What what made you want to share that on Twitter? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, I, I think look, it's a it's an email that makes me smile every year, every year that my mom sends it out. And at a time when everyone's in need of a little bit of good news, I thought it would be funny. Uh, and I thought that some of my followers, those that I didn't know and friends of mine, would get a kick out of it. But, you know, I had no idea the extent to which people would get a kick out of it, of course. Right. Every person on Earth has gotten a kick out of this. <laughs> I think now, were you surprised by the response? Absolutely. I mean, I sent, I sent the tweet out about an hour before I boarded a flight from New York to, to San Francisco for work. And the plane happened to not have Wi-Fi. The Wi-Fi was broken. broken. And so I landed to something like 30,000 notifications on Twitter, uh, <laughs> which, which I was not expecting. <laughs> so, Janet, um, as Khaled said, this is something that you do every year. Tell me about this. Well, every year, because my kids all lived in New York, and now especially this year, I have one in Chicago, one in Denver, and the one in New York. I always send out an email so that they can put their preference in 
for what they would like at the holidays as well. If you sign the email, they actually get to choose what type of cheesecake that my friend Bill makes. They get to choose what kind of potato they want. Um, they get to choose what type of snacks if I need to make some tweaks. And then it's just that we find the family time sitting around the table eating is the best time for conversation and the best time for family. So that's why I do it. And then it's like instead of every day saying, well, what are we going to do? I said, well, today we kind of decided um, we're doing the summer night and tomorrow we're going to Galena. We're going to make an afternoon out of that. So they kind of know and then can plan their work schedules as well because obviously right now today they're working remote. So um, we just want to try and fit everything in. That's what I'm saying. And Khaled, you have mentioned your mom does this anytime you and your siblings are going to be home, right? Yeah, well, the last time we were home was the 4th of July, and the email may not have been as comprehensive, but my sister and I definitely got an email before with the same, more sort of summer-flavored options, like potato salad or pasta salad before the barbecue, things like that. (laughs) All right. And Janet, you obviously want to make the most of this time that you get to have with your adult children. Was Christmas always a really important thing for you growing up and, and when your kids were little? Always, always, because I've always felt that traditions are important, and I was always hoping that my kids would pick up maybe one or two, not to the extent that I do, because my family does call me the Christmas nut, but um, just a little bit that they would carry on and remember. And like I told another person, I said, I still get out my mom's little um, angel candlestick holders. The wings are broken off, but it reminds me of her. I have her ornaments saved. I mean, She's deceased as of 10 years, but I have her dishware, you know, things like that, that even my kids will remember some of that because of their time with her. So that's my hope is that the traditions carry on and it can always be a family celebration. So, Khalid, you send out this menu and you've made a number of comments um, on Twitter and elsewhere. Do you have to train to be able to eat this much during the holiday season? (laughs) How do you get ready? (laughs) Well, I think a couple of things. One, I'm born and raised in Iowa. And so, you know, I, I grew up around this food. I grew up on a lot of butter, a lot of cheese. Uh, so I can handle that. And then, you know, as you mentioned earlier in the interview, my, my dad is Arab. And Arab people eat quite a bit as well. Every time I have dinner with his family, it's like I'm not expected to have seconds or thirds. I'm expected to have fourths or fifths. <laughs> so I joke that when I... Uh, when I come back to Iowa, whether it's for the holidays or any time, my stomach sort of like magically expands like Santa's bag. <laughs> I think a lot of us experience that. Um, do you have, you've, you've already been sharing on Twitter some of the things that have been going on when you're back in Iowa. You shared your love of Happy Joe's Taco Pizza, which a lot of Iowans also share with you. Um, do you have a favorite thing that your mom makes that you always look forward to? Oh, man, that's tough. Uh, that's tough. I think, no, because there are so many things that we love. And, and my mom has really already succeeded in, in her goal of getting us to sort of memorialize a bunch of these traditions. Like on Christmas Eve, I'll make uh, Ina Garden's lasagna. We'll all gather around and have a little bit of wine while I do that. On Christmas Day, we'll have this huge breakfast that she makes, uh, followed by way too many snacks, followed by way too much dinner. And so there's not really one thing, although every year we really do look forward to this mushroom cheese bread uh, that my aunt Kathy uh, made from a, a recipe in uh, a suburb of Illinois where she's from. 
And that, you know, not only in our family, but like my friend group, people that I went to high school with still remember that mushroom cheese bread from when they used to come over to our house. Oh, wow. Legendary. A lot of butter. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, you've been living in New York for 15 years and you have never not come home for Christmas? I've been home every year and it's not, wow. it's not always been easy because, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the sort of track is I always sometimes joke. It's like the Oregon trail. You go from New York to Chicago to Dubuque and whether you take a sort of puddle jumper from Chicago to Dubuque or you drive, you're up against the elements every year. <laughs> Absolutely. And this year is no different. I'm glad you're already safe in Iowa. So um, 15 years, never missing Christmas. I'm not going to, the word, the phrase favorite child seems a little <laughs> unfair, Janet, but that's impressive. He's promised me that he would always come. My daughters are married now and um, they need to spend time with uh, their spouse's family so um, it's in every other year, but Caleb has promised me that he would always come home for Christmas. So I'm counting on that. Yeah. Wow. So Janet, with all of this attention, I'm sure it's nothing that you expected. You also have a lot of things to do. Clearly, you've got plans. What does it mean to you to have total strangers from the Internet talking about your Christmas menu and, and how much joy and love you put into this? All I can say is I am totally overwhelmed. I I still have a hard time wrapping my head around this. I just, um, I don't know what to say. Like I said, some of the um, responses, and obviously I didn't read that many. I'm only on Twitter to follow my son. That's the only reason I'm on Twitter. But um, it just, it made me smile. And then at the same, you know, in the same sense that everybody knows what we're doing and what we're eating is really kind of different, you know. So, yeah, surreal. Um, yeah, I'm just <laughs> trying to go about my usual Christmas things. And I have a new grandbaby this year, too. So it's my oh, first time with a little grandchild in the house. So, um you know, we're just putting it all in perspective and thinking that hopefully people are happy seeing this and following it. So um, that's, like I said, I'm just overwhelmed. So, Well, and, and Khalid, a lot of us think our mom is the best. You clearly think your mom is the best. And now millions of people agree with you. <laughs> what, what does that feel like? It's great. I mean, it's a long time coming. My mom is honestly an angel. It's like <laughs> you sometimes see these stories go viral and, and then you learn after the fact that like someone was being misrepresented or there's more to the story that meets the eye. Like like my mom said, she's she's been a volunteer in the community for many, many years. My grandma, who uh, who grew up in a small town called New Vienna, was also an angel. So it's passed down through generations. She was a school nurse growing up in high school. She fed all my friends. Uh, so I'm just excited for people to see how great she is. Well, thank you both and have a very, very Merry Christmas. Thank you. Merry you Christmas well. to you. Khaled El-Khatib is a marketing executive and freelance writer who lives in New York. He grew up in Dubuque, Iowa. He is home for Christmas with his mom, Janet El-Khatib, who lives in Dubuque. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer. 
It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. This hour, we're learning about unique holiday traditions, and we've got just one left. Where do you think you're going? Nobody's leaving. Nobody's walking out on this fun, old-fashioned family Christmas. No, no, we're all in this together. This is a full-blown, four-alarm holiday emergency here. We're going to press on, and we're going to have the hap, hap, happiest Christmas since Bing Crosby tap dance with Danny f***ing K. That is National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, released in 1989. And a lot of families make a tradition out of watching the movie each year. That is not enough for the Dunlap family. They've been recreating scenes from the movie for a decade now. This will be year 11. And it started with two brothers, Brad Dunlap of Coralville and Brian Dunlap of Fairfield. And it started pretty simple, but it's gotten a lot more complicated with each passing year. Brad and Brian are here with me. Hello, Brad. Hello, Charity. And hello, Brian. Hi there, Charity. Thank you both for being here. And Brad, I'll let you start. Tell me um, what your connection is with this film, how this got to be a thing. Well, it's interesting because we didn't really grow up as a family watching it together. Uh, but of course, you know, everybody in my generation has seen the film. And Brian, at one point, procured the moose mugs um, that are famously done in the eggnog scene with Cousin Eddie. And he decided that he should bring them to Christmas. And uh, he did. And he decided it might make it might be fun to just kind of recreate a scene a little bit. So we just did kind of the, the classic thing. And it started off no big thing. And we took a couple photos and threw them up on Facebook and got, you know, a lot of feedback. <laughs> People <laughs> and liked so, it, right? So it, it, it just blossomed from there. <laughs> All right. So, uh, Brian, tell me about that first year. You bring the, the moose mugs. And who were you in that scene? Yeah. So I, I brought the moose mugs and I was like, hey, I got kind of a Clark get up, a, a, a kind of an ugly Christmas sweater, just typical Clark look and said, do you, you guys throw on a costume and, and we'll we'll drink some nog with, with costumes on. And they found stuff around their house, uh, robes and uh, dickies and things like that. Because everybody's uh, got a dickie sitting around the yeah. house these days. Sure. So, so I think we made it might have been a handmade dickie, but yeah, uh, that was a, that was, was a custom dickie. I, <laughs> yeah. I I cut off a turtleneck the first year. <laughs> yeah, so that's kind of how it all started. We had a couple uh, Eddie costumes. I was Clark, and, and like Brad said, we, we we took some pictures, and it did get a lot of feedback, and so it just kind of grew from there. All right, and that first photo was not particularly true to the movie because like you said it you had two cousin eddies everybody wants to be cousin eddie right right. so you were you were the cousin eddie dressed for that holiday scene i was cousin eddie with the dicky and then brent came in and did your other brother yes the youngest brother he came in um with the sewer pipe doing the cousin eddie in the street scene all right and anybody who's seen it knows it and i can't i can't give you the official or the uh, the very memorable line because i yeah. can't say it on the radio the latrine is full the Something latrine like is full sure that sounds just the same so all right you did that one year and then brian how did you decide you were gonna do it again oh well we we it turned into okay our very elementary costumes were a big hit what if we like take some time and put in some effort and getting some more authentic costumes so we 
year two, uh, I don't even know what costumes we did, but you know, we, I think we had a, the, the blue leisure suit appeared. Yeah. Uh, you know, you can find a lot of stuff on eBay and at thrift stores, uh, that go back to, you know, real stuff from 1989. So, um, we, we picked out some different costumes and, and, and just a little more detailed look. <laughs> yeah. I think it was the blue leisure suit that Eddie wore at the table. And then it was the uh, Blackhawks jersey. And I can't yes. remember the third thing. I think we had Dad actually wearing the Blackhawks Yeah, Dad jersey. got involved with the Blackhawks jersey. So, all right, it started out as a, a brother thing, and it has grown pretty dramatically over the years. You do not have to recount all ten scenes that you've done right. for me. Um, but, but things did get more involved. Brad... Has there been a lot of enthusiasm from the rest of the family? Yeah, I would say the kids uh, enjoyed it. Um, initially, the wives were less enthusiastic. They kind of tolerated it. You know, we're here to have our family Christmas. You guys are kind of getting into this big production and taking away time. And then we started to try to actually engage them, and, and we did. We were successful in getting um, Brent's wife involved and, and mine as well, I would say reluctantly. Um, but to, to date, I think we've had almost everyone involved in a scene, whether they were a character or they were taking part in the staging or the filming or, or the photography or whatever. All right. So and, it's become a thing. Right? <laughs> whether, whether they like it or not, it's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> so that sounds like a threat. <laughs> not exactly, but we're committed to it. All right. So, Brian, tell me about the, the scene. I mean, the, I was looking at photos and there's the, the freeze scene where you have you must have your entire family involved in this. Tell me about that. Most of it. Yeah, that that was our biggest uh, participation as far as the, we got our, our mom and dad in that. Like, like, like Brad said, we pulled in wives and kids. And so um, that was our, our, our biggest probably to date uh, as far as involvement and took a lot of work to uh, stage that. And we have, I think Emma and Anna have kind of been, a couple of our daughters have, have taken over uh, doing that work. The production, the production side. <laughs> okay, so yeah. for people who aren't familiar with the, with the movie, um, Brad, why don't you describe that scene for us? This is when the police come in after uh, Eddie had gone out and captured um, the Clark's boss and brought him back to the house. So uh, it's a pretty iconic moment in the movie where uh, Chevy's in the front and, and his uh, wife is next to him and uh, the police break through the door and they say freeze. And so you've got uh, all the characters with their hands up. And uh, like Brian said, this required us to kind of dig deep, find a lot of costumes and also engage most of the family. Yeah, how many people are in that photo? Hmm, what would it be? A dozen? About, yeah, 10 to 12, I suppose. Yeah, that's yeah. a lot. That's yeah. a lot of costuming. How much money do you think you've invested in this over the years? <laughs> that's a good question. What would you say? I would say Brian has been the lead on the procurement of the specialty items. Um, you know, we've had to buy things like we did a scene um, that's the neighbors when they come home with their fancy. Todd and Margot. When Todd yeah. and Margot. 
uh, and they've got their kind of shiny briefcases. So he, he procured those. Uh, we had to procure a uh, fur coat for the freeze scene. That was an interesting one. We thrifted that. But I know we've done some online purchasing. I'd, I'd say it's probably a few hundred bucks, wouldn't you say, Brian? Easily. I'll yeah. bet that's conservative. I'll bet that is a conservative estimate. Easily. <laughs> so, um, Brian, with getting the younger generation involved, and we're actually going to bring somebody from the younger generation into the conversation here in a moment, has there been any reluctance or pushback? Well, they, you know, 11 years ago, they didn't get it. You know, when we first started, they didn't understand who Clark and Eddie were, but they've been forced to watch this movie many times over the last decade. And now it's a part of their Christmas season as well. And so they, they like being involved (laughs) and want to be involved. All right. At least you that's what you think. So that's good. That's what I think. Right. So I do want to bring in somebody from the younger generation. Natalie Dunlap is a student at the University of Iowa, also an intern here at Iowa Public Radio. And she brought this whole situation to my attention. Natalie, welcome. Oh, thank you for having me here. (laughs) So from a, a younger perspective, I mean, you you were pretty young when this all started. Had you even seen the movie? No, the recreations preceded my first watching of the movie I remember like what they were describing like the dicky and the like blue suit that I feel like the per- like it was like a size too small maybe and people were making jokes about that because it was like a thrifted thing um but yeah so I like was kind of like oh why are they like in these weird costumes and like vaguely understood it was referenced to something before I actually watched it and then yeah as we got older the cousins started watching it as well and uh, have gradually gotten incorporated into the tradition. And enthusiastically incorporated? Yeah. I People get excited about, like, making it correct, like, having uh, my other cousins, like, help stage it. And since we're, you know, younger, it, it was kind of, like, more low production when it was started with the uncles, I might say. But now it's, like, the younger generations got involved. We bring the skills of, like, knowing how to edit things. And they've gotten very, like, specific with, like, the staging and the background. And we've, like, moved things around in my grandma's house to make it look like the actual scene in the Griswold house. And, yeah, we've, like, edited some videos. I tried to do a TikTok. The lip-syncing skills of yeah. the people in the scene didn't live up to my vision of the TikTok, but we tried to make it like even it was more than still 21 degrees i think <laughs> it was a terrible year to be doing it outside <laughs> yeah. and you, how does does that hurt to hear your daughter say that you didn't live up to her standards no, no. <laughs> as with anything when technology is involved you know the older generation gets criticized you're not doing this just give me the phone so we were trying to when we upgraded from kind of just doing random scenes, then we started to try to do side-by-sides where we'd take a still from the movie and we'd try to recreate exactly what was going on. And so that's when um, the nieces and the daughters started to give feedback about this. And so we just handed over the production side to them. And then we kind of upgraded it to the more TikTok format and live action and things like that. So sometimes it gets a little – there's a lot of cooks in the kitchen. <laughs> Yeah, uh, there, there's a lot of opinions about how things should go, but uh, I think the the younger generation has brought kind of a, a new, pro- a higher production quality. We haven't maybe always lived up to our expectations on the actor side, but nonetheless, we pull it off. So now, Brad, earlier you were talking about getting positive feedback on Facebook. Hey, Brian, do you feel like 
it is maybe those clicks, those likes that that have driven you forward a little bit. Oh, for for sure. Uh, knowing there's an audience out there that that comments and appreciates it and looks forward to it, and you know it it completes their Christmas Eve evening or whatever it might be. Um, it does. It drives us a little bit. <laughs> and Natalie, do you feel like that puts pressure on the production team when your uncle and your dad feel like their public is awaiting yeah. this performance? Yeah, we've been told as the night is going on. You know, we've like had our Christmas dinner, we've opened our presents, we've taken our pictures, but then the like time crunch comes down. And they're like, people are expecting this. This is part of people's Christmas Eve tradition is updating their Facebook and seeing what the Dunlaps are up to in, in Washington, Iowa. But I don't know <laughs> do how it feels that that's accurate. <laughs> I don't know how true to life is. They're, they do get a response. I don't know if people are like checking their notifications for it, but it is fun. Yeah, I'll, I'll be waiting this Christmas Eve. Kids, step aside. I'm going to update my Facebook and, and see what the Dunlaps are doing. Um, so, Brad, what's the plan for this year? Well, um, we don't like to charity give, you know, broadcast. <laughs> we like it to be a surprise when it goes live. Oh, so wow. I will, I will let you know that this year is probably the most ambitious from a participation perspective. So we're going to even extend to a few cousins who haven't gotten involved. Wow. So it'll be the most characters, uh, definitely. And it's, it's a scene that most people will know. Uh, I mean, that's, that's the thing. It's been, it's been hard to, we've done some of the big obvious ones, like the emptying of the latrine and the freeze moment. And there's been a lot of other uh, kind of classics. So we're trying to be thoughtful about, and every year we say, well, what's it going to be next year? So this year we've got one that's a major scene at the table. I'll say okay. that. What's the technical level of this scene? Do you have your younger generation? Are they up to the, the technical challenge that you're presenting them? For sure. Yeah, <laughs> there's no doubt about that. And I think my mom, my mom might be as excited as anybody right now. Wow. Why do you think that is? You can't uh, tell me, can you? I, I, I can't, but <laughs> she is. Yeah. We did get together on Black Friday, and yeah, all the family was together, and that was one of the topics of conversation. And I was surprised. Grandma's more involved this year than ever. She's like, we were looking at the reference material of the scene, and she's thinking of how she might arrange her table and might do some decoration, might even plan some food around nice. making it accurate. <laughs> wow. Impressive. So it's been... 10 years, 11 years. <laughs> this has been an important part of your family Christmas. Brad, how do you think that this has changed the holiday for you? Yeah, well, I mean, it does It does bring the family together in planning. And as, as we mentioned in the early days, I think it was more of a tolerated diversion that the brothers kind of got a kick out of. Um, but it, it's a topic, as, as Natalie said, when we're kind of getting into the holidays and there's suggestions and and there's debate and there's kind of a team spirit that goes into it so yeah it's become I think a highlight for for a lot of us and uh, I don't think Christmas Eve would be the same if we didn't do it much to the chagrin of probably my wife and others (laughs) (laughs) Natalie um, is this a, a bonding experience for you and the cousins both in being part of the production and making it happen and rolling your eyes pretty hard at (laughs) at the older generation I was gonna say part of it's the rolling the eyes and like poking fun at watching all the effort that's put in but 
yeah, it, it is fun. And there's like a lot of creative people in our family too. So it's, it is like a little creative expression because <laughs> you've got to, you know, make some sort of content on Christmas Eve. Obviously that's what it's all about. <laughs> right. <laughs> content creation. <laughs> well, and, and Brian, um, Brad's got his Christmas vacation button down on today with uh, multiple scenes of Clark in different um, poses. Natalie's got her Griswold family Christmas shirt on. What about you? Are you, are you dressed for this occasion? Um, of course I am. I have <laughs> Are you lying? Emotions, the holiday emotions of Clark Griswold on my T-shirt today. It was wear red or green at school, and so I chose my red uh, Griswold shirt. Nice. And the kids love it. And I, as I was leaving the gym, the theme song to uh, Christmas Vacation was playing over the over the stereo. So in your honor. Well, no, it just happened. Just, just happened. happened. But that's just on my playlist, on the playlist. So my, my kids, or when I say my kids, my students get some pretty heavy exposure to it. <laughs> well, I hope you all have the ha happiest Christmas you possibly can. Thank you very much for talking with me. Thanks for having us, Charity. Thank you. Thank you. Brad, Brian, and Natalie Dunlap. And I want to take a moment just to say that Natalie has been an intern with the IPR talk show team for the last seven months, and she is now moving on. Natalie, thank you. You have done great work, and you've been a delight to work with. I know that I speak for everyone when I say that you will be missed, and we cannot wait to see what your future holds. Happy holidays, everybody. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Sure.